You're now listening to episode 114 of the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here, we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Brandon Hole and Tom Scaselli joined here today with Vince Gevings, founder of Villanautics LLC and co-founder of Tri-City Equity Group LLC. Over the last seven years, Vince has built a multifamily portfolio and owns and operates over 20 units in his personal portfolio. An additional 52 units as part of a joint venture and just syndicated his first 48-unit property as a general partner. In today's episode, we discuss the challenges Vince faced closing a 48-unit apartment building at the height of the COVID-19 shutdown and how he had to change his business plan as a result. We also touch on property management tips, process improvements, and more. Hey, Vince, thanks for taking the time to come on the show today. Would you be able to give our listeners a little information on your background and how you got involved with real estate? Yeah, absolutely, Tom. So uh, my name is Vince Gethings. I'm active duty Air Force. I've been in the military for 14 years uh, serving active duty. I got into real estate in around 2013. I bought my first live-in flip using the VA uh, home loan benefit, which is absolutely um, essential. If you're, if you're in the military and you want to start dev- uh, growing wealth, that is the, the best ticket you have is your VA home loan. So that's what I did. Live-in flip with that. Sold it about 2016-ish. Um, took the capital from that, which was all tax-free. Uh, no capital gains tax on that and rolled that into real estate. I wanted to do passive income. At the time, all I knew was uh, Bigger Pockets and uh, read Brandon Turner's book. So I got into like, okay, I'm gonna buy a bunch of small multifamily properties, the duplexes, fourplexes. I did that for about two years. I gained, um, got up to about 20 units in my uh, personal portfolio all by myself. And then I kind of hit this really hard plateau or wall or whatever you want to call it. Like I was, my systems were at the, the end of their uh, rope. My bandwidth was at, you know, was tapped out and I knew I needed to do something, but I just didn't know what it was. Um, but I could see these other guys like David Tupin and stuff like that, just absolutely crushing him. Like, I'm okay. I'm missing something. What am I missing? Um, and that's when I went out and got more education, uh, joined a mastermind group, uh, got figured out all the things I was doing wrong and could be doing better. And within six months, I was under contract on a 52 unit closed that with a JV. And then a little under a year later, we just closed a a 48 unit um, value add property in El Paso, which I think we're going to talk about here in a little bit um, during uh, the height of coronavirus, or hopefully it was the height of coronavirus, April of 2020. Um, Yep. And that's where we're at now. Now we're just doing look for more deals and continuing to scale, scale our business. Awesome. Awesome. That's always great to hear. So before we dive into the syndication, I did, did want to get your take on it along the journey of doing the personal portfolio, the, 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 the JV and now syndication. Uh, have you been able to ascertain yet? Has there been any returns? Has there been returns better you know, on Has there been a better return on one of those strategies than, than the others? Um, definitely not the doing it by yourself. That was probably the worst uh, because you just end up doing like everything, um, you know, Jake Stenziano, one of the, one of my mentors, he always calls it like the I'm a mentality 
because when you're doing it by yourself and you're doing those small deals, like you don't have enough cash flow to afford, um, you know, high quality people, even if it's like virtual assistants or anything like that, or, or for you, like a CPA, like I couldn't have afforded a, a good CPA based off that because the cash flow wasn't there with those small multifamilies. And I'm just doing everything. I'm doing the bookkeeping. I'm doing all the, the contracts and everything. Plus also trying to grow. So by yourself, probably the worst way. Uh, my favorite way is JVs. Uh, just because there's less moving parts. So if you can do a JV um, and, and those type of partnership structures, I like those just because you don't have that extra few layers of investor relationships, uh, SEC filings, and all those um, different layers. Uh, syndication was a whole lot of fun. Definitely made me a better investor. Uh, definitely added a whole uh, different level of um, commitment to what I do because I am a fiduciary now. So it's not just my money on the line. It's you know, all these other people's money and they're trusting me to do the right thing and to know what I'm talking about. So that was a whole extra level of um, experience that I had to develop and skills I had to develop as well. So if you had to say, which, you know, you know, going forward, are you, are you going to, you know, you're pretty much done with the personal portfolio. You're sticking with the JVs and the syndications basically. I think so. I don't think I'm going to be looking at anything by myself. Uh, there, there are the, those occasional one-off um, like right now. And uh, I'm doing like a few fix and flips in Michigan because opportunity came up. Um, they had a big flood and they're, they're selling properties there, um, you know, 30 cents on the dollar. So pick up a couple of those, have my contractor flip them, throw them in the market, but that's not necessarily a, a uh, long-term business strategy for me. It's just one-off deals. But yeah, for, for my personal portfolio or my business, we're going to be doing JVs, partnerships and syndications primarily. Nice, nice, nice. So, you know, shifting gears a little bit to the syndication, it was your first syndication, 48 unit apartment complex that you closed on in April, which is of course in the height of COVID-19, the shutdown. Um, how did that affect, you know, how did that affect uh, the business plan you had going in? Like just what, how did COVID impact you? And that deal. Oh, that was, uh, that was very exciting. So we put in uh, full context of the picture here. So I believe we found that in February, I think we went under contract. We we're ready to close in March. And that's when, uh, you know, when we went to contract, it was like kind of COVID was this thing over, you know, it, it just started happening here in the bigger cities, nothing really crazy, no shutdowns or anything like that. And then like March hit, end of March hit, and we're like 11th hour getting ready to close. And all of a sudden, like this, the country like shuts down. So uh, up to that point, our underwriting was fine. You know, we do the the C class, value add, you know, reposition to maybe like a C plus, a, a B minus, you know, your your typical um, uh, value add strategy. And that's what we were going in. So we underwrote for those type of uh, expectations and those type of returns and assumptions. And at the end of March, we had to have a, a meeting with the with the general partners. And we had to pretty much scrap everything we've done for like the last two months. We just like dragged it, dropped it in the trash can and completely started over with all of uh, entirely new set of underwriting assumptions and guidelines and uh, not being an expert and not trying to be, uh, because again, fiduciary, I'm going to do everything I can to be, uh, to make sure I make the best financial decisions uh, to preserve my capital, my investor's capital, you know, rule number one preserve capital. So I went out and I talked to a bunch of people that are way more high level than me. 
uh, people with, you know, thousands of units under their belt. And I was kind of a nerd about it. And I created a spreadsheet and each column, I put whatever their predictions were or whatever their uh, un new underwriting assumptions were things like um, zero additional income for the next uh, 12 months. Uh, zero rent growth, or even if you're in a, um, if you're getting a premium on rent, like a negative 10% um, rent growth for the next, you know, 12 to 18 months, things like, uh, you know, 25, 30% economic vacancy for the next 12 to 24 months. Um, lender required reserves, you know, anywhere from six to 18 months. So I went down and, and each person I talked to, I filled out this, this column of what they were seeing uh, from the things in their portfolio and what they were predicting going forward from their advisors. And then I just averaged it out. And then we built an entirely new um, pro forma based off of these people that probably had, you know, 10,000 units under the belt and in the game for, you know, probably combined, I don't know, hundred years or so uh, a worth of experience um, and built entirely new pro forma and we, we decided that the deal wasn't gonna work at that point. Um, we went and told the sellers like, look, we are so far apart now. I don't think we can make this work. We voted and we gotta, we gotta pull out of the deal. It's like, again, 11th hour, we're supposed to close in like two weeks. Um, Cause everything that was going down, uh, like we just went into like uh, countrywide shutdown, right? And then that was on Friday. And then we spent the whole weekend trying to figure out, okay, how can we make this deal work, right? We, we, we told them, we, we broke the, broke the um, whatever bad news to them, but then we're like, okay, there has to be Hail Mary here. There has to be something uh, we can do. Spent the whole weekend trying to figure out what we can do. And on Monday, set up a call uh, again with the brokers and try to figure out, okay, we spent all weekend, this is what we can do. We need a, um, I don't remember what it was, like a $130,000 uh, seller credit um, to move forward. And they, we ended up getting $90,000 credit at closing. So $90,000 credit at closing, which kept us well, well capitalized going into closing, which, uh, roughly equated to, uh, between the 90,000 plus the money we had already raised, um, somewhere around 18 to 20 months of pity reserves, um, in cash at closing. So that made us, uh, feel very, very good. We can sleep well at night knowing that we can weather a very, very long storm with that type of, uh, that type of uh, capital and liquidity uh, going into closing. Um, yep, and then we closed and our property manager is absolutely crushing it there. Um, we're already in with our revised underwriting we did. Um, he's already rounding like the 20th month line of our pro forma. So he's already in like two year uh, KPIs and returns. Um, and we're in this thing for like four months. So he is absolutely crushing it. It's quite the, uh, quite the comeback story there. So talk to me about, you, you said you're, you're buying C, C properties and you're trying to make them C plus B minus properties. How does the, how did this, how has COVID affected your, I guess, physical and economic vacancy so far. And do you expect that to change, especially now that the unemployment benefit has been cut? Yes, all of it. Um, so one thing uh, that, again, another learning piece for me out of this whole thing is when, when I'm looking at markets before, 
I didn't really pay attention to the uh, politics of a state or an MSA or a city or anything like that. I, I look at all the other metrics everybody else does, like crime, landlord friendly, uh, friendly laws, um, things like that. Um, but I never really looked at to, you know, what the governor's policies are. And now I do a lot because I have two portfolios um, that are almost identical. I have one in Michigan and one in Texas. And they couldn't be performing any further uh, apart right now. Texas, absolutely crushing it. Like I said, we, we're, we're rounding uh, our two year, uh, our year, year two in our performer that we built for this deal, this, this reposition, we're already on the second year in four months. Michigan is like treading water to stay alive uh, because of the, uh, the politics there and, and what the governor has done um, and how everybody reacted to what the government has done there. So I would say there's no blanket um, thing you should do. It's very going to, it's going to vary dependently on what your local government does, what your governor does, your mayor does, uh, because my economic vacancy in Michigan right now is probably like, I don't know, 23, 24% right now. Um, and a lot of that is like five or six people that have just stopped paying since like May and I can't do anything about it. So they how just, are you handling that? They're not May. Else? Oh, sorry. March. Like, they how stopped are you handling it. that? Um, there's not a whole lot you can do. Uh, we're saying really, as far as the people that are getting um, waiting to be evicted, you know, we're, we're keeping track. We're, we're sending letters. And there was a point where we couldn't even send letters because that was like pressuring them. So we couldn't post the, the things on the doors. We couldn't do the door hangers. We couldn't, we couldn't pressure people during this, this crisis to make it worse. So we literally couldn't even like approach the tenant about, Hey, you stopped paying us for like four months. We could, um, so right now what we're doing is we're, we're tracking the balances uh, very closely. We're, we're tracking the laws on when the courts are going to open. They tried doing some zoom, like zoom court hearing things and, and judgments that that um, didn't work because um, they didn't show up and then they're like, okay, well, we'll schedule, we'll reschedule in two weeks for a live uh, uh, session. So I was like, what was the point of the, the zoom one anyway? But anyway, yeah, so we're, we're paying very close attention to what the courts are doing, what the, uh, what the governor's doing. Are they going to lift the moratorium? Um, they have some um, programs there. It's called the eviction diversion program. Uh, so that is uh, something that's supposed to soften the blow to landlords. Um, if the tenants, if the residents have stopped paying, um, it's some kind of deal you cut with the, the state and they, they pay off a portion of what the balance uh, due is. I am, um, I don't know, optimistically skeptical on that program just because it's a government program and probably is not gonna benefit me, but we'll be there. Our lawyers are on top of it and they're gonna uh, do everything they can to recoup some of those funds. Um, as soon as they lift the moratorium, uh, all the bad actors that took advantage of the program, they're going to be evicted and we put new people in there. Uh, the frustrating part is, is that the market, uh, like many parts in the country, is still extremely hot. So we have waiting lists of people trying to move in to my properties and we can't uh, move them in <laughs> because these, these, uh, the bad actors that are just sitting there waiting and playing the game of um, 
whatever the, the, the local politics were and policies for the eviction moratoriums and stuff like that. Uh, we're Texas, completely different story, absolutely crushing it, getting, you know, market rents, uh, sometimes even premiums on some of the, uh, some of the units that we rehab nicely. Um, and they have like a three day eviction, uh, process. So it's, it's pretty awesome. So going through this experience with your Michigan properties, uh, property properties, how is your strategy going to change going to change going forward? In Michigan, I'm probably going to be looking for uh, nicer uh, class products. Um, I so inside Michigan, I have that's like kind of two portfolios inside there. I have like a, a B class uh, portfolio product, and then I have like the C class. The C class has definitely been hurt uh, a lot more than the B class. So if I am going to stay in Michigan, I am going to go for a higher class asset. Absolutely. You know, that makes a lot of sense. You know, and I know you, you mentioned property management does play a key in it. Um, when it comes to property management, are, is there a way, have you been able to identify a good property manager from a bad property manager? Has that, you know, have you been able to separate that yet? Um, I'm working on it. So I've, I have three right now that uh, I work with and the biggest traits of the ones that are, are more successful or, or the, the KPIs are showing that they're more successful is the ones that are willing to learn new processes um, versus the ones that this is how it's done. This is how, you know, I do it. That stuff doesn't work here. When you start hearing things like that, like you can't do a rub here, you can't do moving fees here. Huge red flag for me. I'm going to uh, probably not go with you rather than the one that's like, wow, I've never seen that. You know, how does that work? Right. If you're bringing up something like a rub or something like that and they, that, that, is the type of response you get. That's somebody I want to work with, but that's uh, mainly the biggest one is uh, willing to learn and listen to you as the owner uh, to implement new processes or try new things. Um, the other one is the ones that are willing to jump on the weekly pulse checks and not, uh, you know, hum and haw and complain about it. That is a huge thing for me. That is probably one of the best things we've ever done is one set standards, set the KPIs and the expectations, the key performance indicators, but then also couple that with a weekly meeting, same time, same place. Uh, we do it on Zoom and they know, you know, rounding out Thursday, Friday afternoon that on Monday, they're going to jump on a call and they're going to have to go over these, these metrics, vacancy, uh, balance due, delinquency, all the uh, lease expirations, things like that, all the CapEx projects that are in work. So they're going to you know, either work them or come up with an alibi or something of what the status is on these days, because we're going to talk about it. There's going to be, a, you know, a sheet right in front of us that says, you know, what's up with the windows? What's up with the stairs? What's up with this, you know, unit 104 turn or something like that. And we're going to go over each one. So we're, we're a normal property manager. They're just going to go weeks without talking, sometimes even months without talking to the owners um, in a lot of cases. And, that is, uh, that's very detrimental to, uh, executing a business plan. You know, uh, property managers that are, uh, open to change, changing the way they operate, um, at the, the direction of the owner are, are on your list of being one of the better property managers that you actually want to work with. How do you actually go about influencing that change, uh, to get the results you want? Got it. So the best thing we've done is get, the property managers to 
think and act like owners. And the best way to do that is incentivize them to think and act like owners by paying them like owners. So what we do is on all of our property management contracts, we create a structure where they get bonuses if they reach certain KPIs. And that has been by far the best incentive to get property managers to start thinking and acting uh, like an owner is incentivizing them. So that's one way. Another way is if the deal is big enough and they have the, the means, make them partners. Because the more, the more fish you can align swimming in the same direction on a property, uh, it's, it's going to be beautiful. Um, if you get your property manager in on the deal with you, they're going to be looking at that NOI a lot more closely than if they were just looking at whatever fee income is based off of you know their gross rents. Uh, they're not going to care about the expenses because they get paid off of gross rents collected. So by adding things like if you hit a uh, NOI of whatever it is, 35,000 for, for this quarter or a hundred thousand for this quarter, um, you will get a, you know, 1% bonus or something like that. And uh, same thing, if economic vacancy stays above, uh, I don't know, 90% for this quarter, you get a 1% bonus. So adding those KPIs in there really gets them to, to start thinking of keeping units uh, rent, rented with, and I said economic vacancy, not regular vacancy, because economic vacancy is the people there need to start pay, need to be paying as well. So not just keeping the, the, the vacancy low, but keeping it low with people that are paying on time every month. So that's one to make sure that they're vetting the uh, applicants properly. And they're not just, again, just lowering standards just to keep the, the occupancy up. And the other one is the NOI. Notice that didn't say the, the, the revenue needs to be, you know, the rent collected needs to be at a hundred thousand. It's the NOI needs to be at a hundred thousand because that's going to make them think about the expenses a lot more. Um, you know, they're going to be looking at uh, who they're, who they're contracting uh, jobs out to, wh what the utility bills are and stuff like that. Like all these things that add up, they're going to be paying attention to that a lot more because that's going to eat up the NOI. Uh, so we set those NOI targets in there. So incentivizing uh, property managers, uh, by setting KPIs and providing them, giving them bonuses if they reach those performance metrics. Uh, and then also the next level of that would be making them partners. Uh, cut them in on the equity is probably the ultimate way to make sure everybody is aligned. And not only will that work for the property management and the execution of your business plan, that is going to really add a lot of confidence to your investors to show that the property manager is aligned, their interests are aligned with you and them and the lender they're going to want to see that if the property manager is on the deal with you, they're on, they're on the GP. Uh, they're going to know that everybody is aligned and going in the same direction where people aren't there just to get their, their fee income and they could care less what happens to the, the property and everything else below the line. Um, they just want their fee income. So keeping everybody aligned and incentivizing them that way is the best way I have for that. If you incentivize net operating income does that encourage property managers to cut costs or cut corners like like if i if i am a property manager and i know that there's this one guy or this one company mm -hmm. that does great repair work and i know that if i repair it one time i'll never have to worry you as the owner will never have to worry about it again but that guy costs three times as much as the this other cheaper contractor 
but I know that if I do that, you're gonna have to repair it again, but I might, I might even be out of the picture in a few years when you have to repair this again anyway, and this is going to boost today's NOI. Do you, do you think that the net operating income actually could, could disincentivize or how do you guard against that disincentive? It absolutely could. And that's a great point though. The way that we have made sure that we have the redundancy there to make sure that stuff is mitigated as much, as much as possible is uh, one, we have the weekly pulse checks. So every week, if, if we start seeing repeats and recurs, uh, meaning, you know, they, we, they fix the plumbing at this one unit three times in the last month or, or something like that, or a couple of weeks, like the same problem keeps coming up. You know, the question is going to be asked, like, who are you sending out there? Is this guy, is this person even licensed to do, you know, what they're, what they're doing? Or did you just pick somebody off the street to go work on the wiring or plumbing, right? So that's one thing is the KPIs and we can track or we'll be able to find repeat recurs if the same problems keep coming up. The other one is the bigger contracts when you're talking about contractors is one of our partners, uh, one of the hats he wears is project management. So he's the project management, you know, director, and that's his job is to get three bids for every job, uh, vet them all, make sure they're all licensed and insured and uh, all registered with, um, you know, the Better Business Bureau or something like that. And they all have some kind of credibility um, and, and some way to track their, their reputation. And then also going through the scope of works, comparing apples to apples, questioning, okay, this person has a, um, a five-year warranty and you're only offering a one, you know, what's up with that? Uh, what's, you know, and stuff like, or, or the materials being used was a, a big one. We did a parking lot recently and one of the, I've learned a whole bunch about parking lots, but one of the things was what type of sealant are they using? What type of the crack seal, what type of machinery are they actually using to lay this stuff? So all of that stuff comes into play. And that's one of the hats that uh, our partner Matt wears is he's the project management uh, guy. So he's working hand in hand with the property manager to vet all of these, uh, these bids as well. Um, just to add that extra layer of, uh, or not, I don't say layer, but extra set of eyes on a project just to make sure that uh, we do our due diligence. Again, fiduciaries for our investors. So we owe it to our investors to make sure when we go out and get a bid that's for a project that's going to cost 10, 20, $30,000 that, you know, we're getting multiple bids. We're vetting them, uh, the contractors, we're, we're vetting the materials going to be used to make sure we don't have uh, repeat recurs and, and wasted money because they did a shoddy job. So that's, um, that's what we do. Um, I don't know if, if you know a better way, but I'm open to open to learn. No, I can't say that we, I can't say that we have a better way. Um, I, I do want to ask a few more questions of kind of along, along the lines of operations, right? So um, I know you are a green, green belt, uh, lean, lean signal oh, yeah. green belt. Yeah, so I have a question about that in a second, but um, do you, are you able to determine operational? Like, so when you buy a multifamily property, there's, you know, deferred maintenance and, you know, bring the market to rent, you know, rental, you know, to the current market conditions to rent that at a higher rate. But then there's also the operational side um, of it too, that sometimes you could reduce expenses and just do things better to minimize uh, costs. Uh, are you able to, op to determine that upfront during due diligence, or is that something that you generally only find out after you're operating the property? Um, I know for me, at least, uh, I have a pretty good idea when I'm building my performance, I'm vetting a property out during due diligence, um, what I can do. So for me, I'm huge on operational efficiencies, hence the, the, the lean six Sigma thing is I can, I spent a lot of time knowing the market, talking to other property managers, talking to other investors in there and really like narrowing down 
how much ins insurance per door is, how much I should um, calculate for, I don't know, wa waste management and stuff like that, water bills and stuff like that. Um, and then once I get those numbers really, really zoned in, I can look at a OM that a broker sends me. And if I know my, you know, expense per door for a C-class product in this side of this town and this market is, I don't know, 3,500, 3,600, and they're showing me like $4,200, like I'm seeing like dollar signs. I'm like, okay, there, there's, there's some, you know, efficiencies to be had. So then I go in and I go line by line and try to figure out where, where's the waste. Uh, and a lot of it's just glaringly obvious. Uh, like I, I'm not putting on my, um, you know, my sleuth, uh, my sleuth hat there and my, my magnifying glass and like looking for, for pennies to save. It's usually like they're paying the maintenance man on salary, like a hundred grand a year or something like that, plus a car. And it's like a 50 unit apartment complex. So it's like, okay, switching to offsite management, boom, just boosted the NOI a hundred grand a year or something like that. So a lot of it's pretty obvious. Um, I look for like a lot of things that people um, overlook or just get complacent with is like utility bills. They just, okay, that's the, that's the utility bill and they just pay it. And they don't look at like, Hey, when's the last time you checked your water consumption compared to, you know, a similar size prop, uh, property, you're like 30% over. When's the last time you changed like water shutoff valves and toilet valves and stuff like that? Oh, never. Okay. First order business swap everything that water comes out with out of, you know, the toilet valves, the shutoff valves, the everything with, you know, new stuff because they're probably leaking and drop your water consumption, you know, 20, 30% uh, inst instantaneously. Um, which is going to, you know, add right to your NOI, boost the property up. Um, so that's a lot of the things I look for. Um, and there's contracts, a lot of, a lot of property managers, especially like the ones we target, uh, the more on the unprofessional side, the mom and pop side that they have a contract from, you know, 2000 that has just been increasing steadily over the last 20 years. And they never thought to go back and renegotiate, you know, what the, what the waste service uh, company is charging for the dumpsters. They never looked at a competitor. It's just, you know, it's in place, just leave it alone. And then I can make one phone call with a direct competitor in town and cut the, you know, the, the waste management um, bill in half or something like that. So those are a lot of things I look for um, when I'm looking at properties. Uh, as far as the, the, the income side, there's so many tools out there like rentometer and stuff like that, or apartments.com. If you just want a secret shop and just figure out, okay, I'm on this side of town uh, with a two unit apartment with these amenities, uh, this type of, um, you know, finish or rehabs, uh, you know, they're, they're getting whatever per square foot, or if it make it easier, like, you know, 625 a unit. Um, and they're at, you know, 550. There's a, there's a good chance you can probably at least get 600. Um, if you just start looking at, you know, the apples to apples comparison of what that market has, uh, or that neighborhood has. That makes a lot of sense. So you know, kind of looking at the, you know, could, could you just, uh, just, yeah, I'm curious. I gotta be honest about the, the lean six Sigma process improvement. Uh, yes. what exactly is that and how has it helped you in, in the multifamily business? All right. So I got that, um, in the air force. So the air force has uh, continuous process improvement, their brand of of lean and it's a set of tools that helps you identify waste and processes and go through and systematically improve them cut out the waste make everything more streamlined more efficient 
and there's a there's a ton of tools out there um if you're interested there's there's probably a bunch of free courses now you can probably go on youtube and watch a bunch of videos on how to how to lean out your your processes um but that's mainly what it is is um probably around 20 different tool sets that you can use or or questioning techniques or or things to dissect processes to to identify waste um you know the big more popular ones let me think like the Pareto analysis, like the 80, 20 principle, right? So going down and trying to figure out, okay, where's, you know, uh, the 20% of your, your actions are going to achieve 80% of your results. Well, that's, that flips in, in the waste world is, you know, 80% of your waste in time consumption and money is going to be off 20% of your processes that are, uh, inefficient. So you just flip that around and it works that way too. So you're going to go through and dissect it like, okay, what am I wasting my time on that I shouldn't be? And a lot of uh, uh, us people like, you know, especially now do that just without putting a name to it. And that's how we find things like, okay, I'm wasting way too much time on, you know, bookkeeping. I'm going to go find a virtual assistant because this isn't revenue generating. This isn't building my business. So I'm going to offload this task to a virtual assistant. So you're, you're a lot of people do this stuff. Um, they just don't do it, you know, consciously, with the, the process, like a systematic process in mind, they just know that, okay, I'm wasting my time here and they figure out ways to cut it out. So the lean, uh, I, I don't do a whole lot of six Sigma. So it's a lot of five, um, five S and a lot of lean, uh, processes, um, of just going through and systematically trying to find waste and ways to increase processes. And there's, there's a bunch more, there's like spaghetti diagrams and pick charts and, all, all this other stuff I love uh, to nerd out about, but uh, it's very, very helpful. That's good to hear. I'm going to have to take, take a deeper look into that. So what's next? What's next um, for you? And I'll, your, I'll give you an example business? here. So hold on, I see this. Uh, so um, Brandon has a, has a printer over his right shoulder about 10 feet behind him. That means every time he prints something out, he needs to stand up, walk across the room, pick it up, come back across the room and sit down at his desk and look at it. Right. So if you add that up over a month, how much time is spent walking back and forth that 10 feet rather than just taking that little desk and moving it to like right, right next to him to where he can just lean over and grab it. So that's something it's, it's so simple, but just looking at, and that would be a spaghetti diagram that you would do to figure that out where you just, you, you draw a picture of your office and you draw lines back and forth every time you have to get up and leave your desk to go do something. And then by the end of like one process, you're like, it, you know, it looks like spaghetti on a paper and you're like, wow, that's a lot of just time and um, transportation waste and, and movement waste when I can just move this printer right next to me and, and save all that time. So it's all these little things that if you look at each one of your processes and, and look at them with that lens, you're going to just start cutting out waste and it just adds up. You save 2% here and 3% here. By the end of that process, by the end of that month or that year, you've saved hours and hours and hours of just time waste and transportation waste. Unless he likes getting his steps in. I don't know. No, that's no, not- I prefer to sit here and do absolutely no yep. movement. <laughs> no, I mean, this is very interesting stuff. So I'm, you know, it, it, 
for sure. Just, just very interesting, but you know, kind of, kind of circling back to the future for you and your business, um, the multifamily business, what's next? What's, are you going to do another syndication JV? Are you sitting idle right now? Kind of waiting to see how everything pans out in the market. We are looking, we're actively looking for new deals. Um, I don't think, um, like my view of syndication or JV or partnerships, um, a lot of people think it's like a, kind of like a pyramid and like, a fund or syndications like on the top of this pyramid and all oh, funds are really cool. Um, I'm definitely going to spend a lot of time learning about those, but, uh, to the question is, um, I don't see them as like a pyramid. I think of it's just tools in a tool belt. So when I do find a deal, I'm going to ask, okay, how can I close this deal the easiest way? And sometimes it's syndication because maybe it requires a huge, um, capital outlay that I just don't have. So I'm going to need to, you know, raise those funds. Uh, and then syndication will be the tool I use to close that. Or I find a smaller deal. Maybe I find a, you know, a B class 20 unit where I was like, okay, that's a nice area town, B class, um, you know, maybe B plus, something like that. And like, I could probably close that with a JV and way easier than syndication um, and just do that a JV or a partnership or something like that uh, to close that. So I just, whatever deal I come across that fits my model, my business plan, um, I'm just going to go with the, the best tool to, to close that, uh, close that deal. Probably syndication. That makes a lot of sense. You know, uh, so what's just kind of a follow-up question to that too is, you know, when it comes to syndication, do you, I guess you don't, you don't, you're not looking at syndication as like a must, like you, you're not looking at like, I have to do a deal. You're more or less, you're just looking for deals. And when the deal comes across, you're saying if syndication makes sense, you go ahead and do the syndication. You're not like forcing deals to happen. Exactly. And that is a huge thing that um, investors need to watch out for. Cause you know, I mentioned before being a fiduciary, because what happens if, if you have that need to close a deal or find a deal, you start bending your criteria, you start bending your KPIs, you start bending your minimums to, in order for a bad deal to start working. And then you're really taking that fiduciary hat off and you're putting your, your capital and your investors capital more importantly at risk. So, um, yeah, if, if the deal comes and it works and it's going to meet our business plan and provide our investors a good return, uh, we'll do a syndication. If it's a little bit more risky, I'm like, hey, this is going to be a little bit uh, more risky play. Maybe we're doing a, um, we're buying a de-stressed property uh, that has a lot of variables, a lot of moving parts. Um, I'd be much more comfortable closing that with a partnership with my money at stake rather than uh, an investor's funds. So I guess the, the lesson there is, yeah, so we're always looking for deals. But yeah, we're not going to, you know, bend our criteria in order to make a deal work. Gotcha, gotcha. And, and, and one question on taxes, we do have to ask the tax related question, of course. You know, on, on these deals you do, are you, are you using cost segregation study and 100% bonus depreciation and uh, why or why not? Absolutely. Because you told me to. No. Um, so <laughs> no, I met, I met Boomer. Um, everybody, I think most people in the industry no boomer right so i met boomer at an event um like two years ago and just totally blew me away with his uh his presentation and um i was like we got to do that and uh we did it on two deals now and it's been absolutely uh, amazing um to have to do cost segregation bonus 100 percent bonus depreciation why i guess why we still have it right it's getting phased out uh, unless something new has happened so maybe 1031 will be popular again in a few years. 
I think we're looking at 2022 for the phase out of 100%. It kind of slides down 20% each year until, to, to, until 2026. So, you know, if you're going to take advantage of it, you might as well take advantage of it now. Um, so what would be the best way for our listeners to learn more about you and what you have going on? Got it. So the social media site we have is the Honolulu Multifamily and More. Uh, it's uh, the Multifamily and More chapter that Jamie Gruber um, – started from Michigan, we, we run the Honolulu chapter of that. So Facebook, uh, Honolulu Multifamily and More. If you just want to get part of our Facebook group, social media group, we do meetups and everything on there, um, Facebook lives and stuff like that. If you want to go to our website to actually uh, meet us, see what we do, it's tricityequity.com. And you can go there, uh, mess around, look at all the projects we have, all the past ones we've done. My partner, Duke, um, spent a bunch of hours. He wrote a, a passive investing guide. He threw it up there for free. So if you want to know, um, you know, the difference between a active multifamily investor and a passive multifamily investor, uh, specifically talking about syndication, you know, being in a GP side or an LP side, um, that gives you a bunch of information and a lot of questions. And then also if you decide to be on the LP side, the passive side, he has uh, a ton of questions and a ton of information on how to vet operators, how to vet markets, how to look at you know, things like PPMs and stuff like that, how to look at um, the KPIs, expected returns, pro formas from the lens of a passive investor to make sure that um, you're vetting operators uh, properly and that investment meets your goal. So uh, kudos to him. He spent a lot of time and energy on that. So you can go get that. It's uh, free. Uh, tricityequity.com. All right. Well, Vince, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the show today. It was uh, amazing having you on. Learned a lot. I'm going to have to look into some lean, uh, lean processes uh, and also check out tricity.com. Check out that passive investor guide. So uh, thanks again. All right. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Brandon. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes and with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.